Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. And if you have, every family has hurts and wounds, and usually um, it can create conflict and frictions and annoyances. It can also turn to rage and, and hatred and even to the point where you just don't talk to each other anymore. And everybody wants their situations to be different, but maybe you have no idea how to do that, how to even start. My guest is... Um, written a book on that called Healing Family Relationships, A Guide to Peace and Reconciliation. His name is Rob Reno, and he um, uh, is my guest for this half hour. Rob, welcome. Boy, thanks, Bill. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Yeah, I was going to read all your fancy credits, but I thought let's just get to the material because we have so many questions we want to ask you about this because I think this is uh, in so many families, and it's so heartbreaking. Yeah, well, this is conversation is only for messed up families with sin and conflicts and problems. So if you're a perfect family, you can find another half an hour. But, uh, you know, my wife and I, we're coming up on 28 years of marriage. We've got seven children. Our eldest two are married and off the payroll. We just welcomed our first granddaughter. So we've got this big family with you know, lots of happiness and lots of joy and, and major problems. Like not, not a day goes by where the, the intensity of our relationships don't bring out some sort of junk in somebody's heart or, or mm. behavior. And we have to navigate through some hurt. Yeah. Why is it so hard to have peace in the home? Well, I think it's because that God created the family as the foundation of all of civilization, all of human life, all places, all times. And so uh, the family gets the, the vast majority of the spiritual attack that comes against us. I mean, yeah, we deal with some spiritual battles at, at work or uh, in the community or things like that. But, man, the, the spiritual attack that comes against the marriage relationship, the sibling relationship, relationships between parents and their kids, um, that's, that's really where our faith is, is lived out. Mm-hmm. Rob, can you kind of uh, pull the curtain back a little bit on your f- personal family? Can you give us a little background on, on, on your own family? Yeah, well, I didn't come from uh, this big Christian family. You know, when I was born, neither one of my parents were Christians. And my mother was my father's fourth wife. My father was my mother's second husband. And so not surprisingly, a few short years into their marriage, things were falling apart. And it was when I was a little baby, I was three months old. God worked a miracle in my mom's life, brought her to faith in Christ, and she was the the first Christian in our family. So I grew up with a Christian mom and an atheist dad. And then my parents got divorced when I was 15. And turns out that my dad, he traveled for business Monday through Thursday each week. And turns out he had mistresses in different cities where he was traveling. And he basically came to my mom and said, I want to keep my mistresses and stay married to you. Mm. Like he actually, he actually said this. And my, my mom was not cool with that, uh, plan. Um, and my parents divorced when I was 15. And you know, it was my, my dad's bad behavior, my parents divorced. That was like the big wound and trauma of my life. And it, it took God a lot of years of 
bringing me to a place of what does it even mean to forgive my dad? I mean, let alone like try to reconcile the relationship with him. Mm-hmm. Rob Reno is my guest. He's written a book called Healing Family Relationships, A Guide to Peace and Reconciliation. Um, Rob, forgiveness, of course, is pretty critical for any family situation. But do you think that uh, some of the modern teaching on forgiveness is maybe a little superficial and maybe not helpful? Yeah, I absolutely do. And I'll go back to my dad's example. So I'm a teenage boy. You find out dad has behaved like this. I had some Christian friends who said, well, Rob, you need to forgive him. And that's good advice, certainly, I guess. But it felt superficial, felt very Sunday schooly. It it felt like, and nobody meant it that way, but it felt like what they were saying is, you know, you've got this hatred, anger, and bitterness in, in your heart, you know, wherever that is. And you're just supposed to go down there and these are little light switches. You just turn off your hatred, your anger, your bitterness, give it to Jesus, and, and you're good to go. Well, I think if, if feelings like that were just little light switches, we would all turn them off. Um, and people also buy into this time heals all wounds lie. That's a phrase you hear out in the culture, time heals all wounds. And that is absolutely not true. I mean, if I take a knife and I give my you know big chop on my arm or something like that, and I say, well, I'll just give that time bad plan. I'm (laughs) bleeding out. I'm getting infected. I'm getting gangrene. Now, it is true that God can heal our heart wounds and our family wounds over time. That's not true, but it's not time that's doing it. Uh, It's God through a very intentional process of forgiveness. Rob, let's talk about the family that does not deal with hurts and conflicts in any kind of direct way. They just maybe sweep it under the rug. They ignore the problems. Oh, Talk about why they should be concerned about that and how they can break out of that very unhealthy pattern. Yeah, well, you used the classic phrase there, right? Sweep it under the rug. So let's think about that uh, picture. So imagine we've got a big room, let's say a wood floor, and there's a rug in the middle. And every evening we come in to clean, so we sweep the dust from around the room under the rug. Well, that's fine for a day or a week or something like that. But after a month or a year or 10 years, that rug is like five inches off the ground with all the junk that's been swept under it. And and a lot of families work like that. And so what happens is someone steps on the rug, all the past junk blows out. We have this big, huge fight. We panic and we sweep it all under the rug again. And we wait till the next big family blow up. Now, here's the problem. You're listening and you're like, man, that's my family. We, we just go from blow up to blow up. We don't actually talk about anything. We don't actually take responsibility for things and ask forgiveness for things and extend forgiveness. Here's one of the challenges. The first person who says, hey, I think we've got a lot of junk under that rug, and I think we ought to talk about it to see if we can work through it. A lot of times that person is accused of being like the bad one. That person's accused of like airing the family's dirty laundry or whatever. So just be prepared if God is kind of calling you to help your family, that, that, that he's calling you to care enough about your family relationships to try to face into some of these things. Just just be prepared that um, some people may not appreciate you doing that. Mm-hmm. Rob Reno is my guest. His book is Healing Family Relationships, A Guide to Peace and Reconciliation. Um, Rob, I know probably part of any healing process would require you to sort of look at past hurts, but what about the person who says, ah, I don't want to look at any past traumas, not interested? Well, for a lot of us, there's 
wounds and hurts back there, there's a reason why we don't go back and deal with them because it's traumatic and painful to do so. But the problem is, is that when we have past hurts and wounds, and and we all do, none of us were raised by Jesus. So we all have Hmm. parents and siblings who, who hurt us growing up. The problem is, is that uh, unforgiven hurts are like a ball and chain around our life right now. Hebrews twelve fifteen says, see to it that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and to defile many. So God's using like an agricultural illustration there, right? A, a mm-hmm. seed of hurt gets planted. If a seed of hurt gets planted and you walk away and ignore it, that seed is going to grow roots. Those roots are going to grow up. And the scripture there says they're going to go up to cause trouble and they're going to defile many. In other words, it's going to mess up other people in your life too. So um, uh, if you've got those issues and, or you've got those hurts, either present or like you said, past, you know, God wants to bring freedom to your life. God doesn't want, you know, I had to deal with this growing up. I, I didn't want my dad's bad behavior to be a ball and chain around my life. I didn't want his bad behavior to be driving anger and bitterness in my life. Rob, I know there's going to be a conflict in homes. I think that's the way humans operate around each other. There's always going to be something. But what about when the conflict is tied to spiritual warfare or spiritual attack? How, how do we fight in this spiritual realm for peace in our homes? Well, Amy and I have to navigate that uh, pretty frequently just as as husband and wife that we'll be in a conflict or we'll be tense with each other or having an argument or fighting and one of us at some point in the argument says hey you know what i feel like we are uh fighting each other here and we have to recognize that this is like a spiritual attack against our marriage this is an attack from the outside and we have to make a choice that are we going to fight the outside force together or are we going to keep fighting uh each other and once that clicks in, like then we're ready to, to, to unify. You know, it's, it's funny. The, the one area of prayer, this will be a conversation for another day. Maybe we, we dig into our visionary marriage book, but first 13 years of our marriage, we never prayed together. Hard. I mean, just dinner time and things like that. Um, but we, I didn't have any kind of spiritual con- leadership or care for my wife. I was a pastor, so I was focused on everybody else at church. And neglecting her spiritually. Um, but we began, began a prayer life together at the 13-year mark. And the one area that was at, we've actually gotten pretty good is praying in the middle of conflict. So we're arguing, we're having a fight about Lord knows what. And one person says, I think we should pray. <laughs> and I love it. It's just, I love it. It's, it's the worst because we're just angry and we're hard-hearted. <laughs> and in order to pray, we have to lower the guard of our heart. We have to come over. And I've, there's been so many times one of us just prays, Lord, help us. And three words out of our mouth, the Holy Spirit rushes in, softens my heart to her, softens her heart to me, you know, and gives us an exit ramp off this thing we've been fighting about. Mm-hmm. When you're in the middle of an argument with Amy, do you ever sit and think to yourself, what do I hope the outcome to be? Um, well, if I'm is, is thinking it you want clearly, your way and sure. she wants her way? Uh, yeah, because, I mean, obviously, if, if Amy and I are in a argument together, the reason is because something she did. Right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm glad I'm glad you laughed at that. Oh, yeah, I laughed I'm hard at that. When I say that. Yeah. Yes. Um, so so, of course, on my side, it's well, she said this or she had this tone of voice or she made that decision. And, and one of the really powerful things that Jesus teaches us to do 
and one of the chapters in the book is kind of called Healing Through Prayer, Healing Family Relationships Through Prayer. But the prayer is asking God to show you your contribution to the problem. Mm. So, I like man, I can, see, I can see her contribution plain as day. <laughs> I can detail it for you. Yeah. But, but maybe my part's not so clear. So I've got to ask God to show that to me. Yeah. Take a break. Rob Renow is our guest. His book is Healing Family Relationships, a guide to peace and reconciliation. I've got a bunch of questions for Rob when we come back, but I'm guessing you might have one too. And if you have one, let me know. I'll ask it on your behalf. You can, of course, remain anonymous. The number is 877-933-2484. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting myfaithradio.com. You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. I am back with author Rob Reno. He and his wife Amy launched Visionary Family Ministries, whose mission is to build the church through a global reformation of family discipleship. The book we're talking about today is Healing Family Relationships, A Guide to Peace and Reconciliation. I love what you were saying about halfway through an argument with your wife, you would stop and start praying. I'd love for you to say more, Rob, if you would, about prayer. And I know that's a central part of bringing healing to any family relationship. But is there any specific prayer strategies we can use if we're if we're looking for reconciliation, seeking it? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. You know, I think for me, what happens is when I'm in a conflict uh, or struggling with a family relationship, you know, I tell myself that I should pray about that. Right? The Lord says, "Boy, you really prompts me. You really need to pray about this." And me having the feeling I should pray about that checks a box for me that I actually prayed about it. Does mm. that make sense? Oh, yeah. Like, I, I had a good intention to pray, and so therefore I must have prayed. But actually, I never really did pray. I never really did go to the Lord and ask for the Holy Spirit to work a miracle of healing and reconciliation in that relationship. Because, you know, the, even on the daily conflicts between siblings and or, or whether this is some longstanding thing in your family. If, if Amy and I have learned anything in our 28 years together, it's that our good intentions and our willpower are, good, are just not going to get us anywhere because we have those. We, we both have good intentions. We mean well, okay, and, and we have willpower. We're trying. I'm trying to be a you know, better husband. She's trying to be a better wife. But we need the supernatural power of God to change who we are. Like I, I need him to actually change my character. Not, not just like willpower myself to somehow be better. So even that basic step, whether it's your relationship with a parent, spouse, sibling, or a child, even that basic step of just going to the Lord each day, even 15 seconds, Lord, I'm burdened for this relationship with my son. I know things aren't good between us. I, I don't have any magic formula for fixing it. Would you please soften my heart toward him, soften his heart toward me, 
and, and work a miracle of healing here. Even mm. that simple, oh. straightforward prayer is the place to start. I love those words, soften heart. Would you do that? That's a great prayer. So I'm still a little stuck. Earlier on in the um, discussion we've been having, you mentioned 15-year-old Rob and his difficulty with his dad and the heartbreak over that. And because you wrote a book on healing family relationships, was there uh, a miracle of healing in your relationship with your dad? There was, um, but it was a very long time in coming. The miracle started just kind of in my own heart. My youth pastor, who was very uh, influential uh, in my life, Ken Geis, who actually pastored in the Twin Cities for a long time. I know Ken Geis. Do you really? Yes. He was my youth pastor in Connecticut. You're kidding. Yep. Okay. Great guy, by um, the way. Yeah, I love Ken, and I'm so grateful for his, his impact in my life and I know he was at Wooddale for uh, uh, a long time, and I think another church uh, up there as well. But, you know, he really walked me through what it meant to choose to forgive my dad. And people get hung up on forgiveness because their their emotions are not their friends. See, I didn't feel like forgiving him. He didn't ask for forgiveness. He didn't deserve forgiveness. And none of those. So there was a lot of emotional barriers, but but I actually had to get out a piece of paper and up at the top of the paper, I wrote, it hurt me when dot, 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 it hurt me when dot, dot, dot. And then listed very specific and concrete things that had happened that had hurt me. And then I, I gritted my teeth and I prayed and I, I said, Lord, you know, you, you say, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Uh, I don't want to forgive my dad. I don't, uh, he doesn't deserve forgiveness. And I want that noted in the minutes of my prayer here, but um, I, I choose to forgive him for this. I choose to forgive him for that. I choose to forgive him for this. And it was this first step of simply choosing obedience. Now, that didn't change my heart or my attitude or anything at that moment. I just had to make a choice to forgive him. And then I entered phase two. Phase two of forgiveness was this daily prayer. God, okay, I've chosen to forgive my dad, but I can't get rid of the hatred, anger, and bitterness that I have for him. You've got to change my heart. You've got to drain the swamp of all that stuff in, in my heart. And that was, that was six years six years of asking God to do that until there was a, a really significant breakthrough. And, and God shifted my attitude toward my dad from anger to compassion. Um, my father, and there's all sorts of things I could tell you. My, his, his mother died in childbirth with him in 1918. His father wouldn't take him. He was adopted by an atheist who taught him not to believe in God. He spent his whole life looking for women to love him. He, uh, he died with a picture of his mother. At, at, he was 90 years old, died with a picture of his mother on his dresser. Mm. And uh, it was three weeks Breaks before he died. Mm-hmm. Three weeks before he died, God did a miracle in his life, brought him to repentance of his sins, faith in Christ. He was radically converted. I've wow. never seen a greater miracle in my life than the conversion of my 90-year-old dad. And um, it was after that that the Lord, he came to us and asked forgiveness for what he had done and uh, we had an unbelievable three days together before he went home oh. uh, to be with the Lord. God is good all the time, Rob. Um, what about a situation where there's a family member that would really love to get some healing, maybe some reconciliation, get the the good vibrations back into the relationship, but there's only one family member that's willing to do it? Does it always take two to heal, or are there things that one person can do? a great question. Um, it takes one for now. Uh, it only takes one to forgive. In other words, by the grace of God, the Lord led me to complete forgiveness of my dad. I, I no longer had hatred, bitterness, or resentment toward him. 
but I didn't, we didn't have a reconciled relationship. Those are two totally separate things. And that's where people get very confused. They mm-hmm. think that forgiveness means reconciliation and, and it doesn't. God, God wants to take you completely through the forgiveness process. So you have no more hatred, bitterness, or anger toward this person so that you are then ready for reconciliation if it's possible. You know, Romans uh, chapter 12, you know, says, live at peace with all as far as it depends on you. You know, if possible, live at peace with all as far as it depends on you. Well, what does that mean? If possible, it might not be possible. Your brother might not want to live at peace with you. Mm-hmm. It, it, you can't live at peace with someone if they're a toxic, abusive person. The emphasis there is if the relationship's broken, don't let that be because of you. Don't let that be because of you. Mm-hmm. That brings me my next thought is if you have a, a family member that is kind of toxic, and I, I don't love that word, but it's the one that's coming to mind right now, and you create some distance between yourself and that family member, is that a unloving position? Is that is that a, sending a message saying, it looks like we're just going to be apart, we're going to be distant, and that's that's the way it's going to be? Those situations are super sad when, I mean, you're asking a question about boundaries, right? When is yeah. it appropriate and godly? to put up boundaries and we can pick our word, right? Toxic, mean-spirited, abusive, whatever word you want to choose. Um, And those family situations are incredibly painful, but sometimes you actually do have to seek healing through boundaries. You know, forgiving someone does not mean availing yourself to be abused by them in a continual way. That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is not a, a, a doormat. I think the best illustration of this in scriptures with Joseph, Joseph is horrifically abused by his brothers, right? Mm-hmm. Nearly murdered, but sold into slavery. So see, we, we see these stories in the Bible, these histories in the Bible and the, oh, Bible story, you know, whatever this, these are real people and real histories. I mean, this was a situation of horrendous physical abuse from a family, right? Now, we know that God was in it, and God is sending Joseph to save the world from famine and save his family and all those things. Um, But you remember the history that Joseph, uh, the brothers come down to Egypt to get food, and as soon as Joseph sees his brothers, as soon as they come into his courtroom or whatever, he says, guys, it's me, it's Joseph, it's your brother, I've missed you, I'm so glad you're back, we can be friends again. No, that's not what he does. These people were horrible abusers. And he has a boundary up with them, and he's not going to let his boundary down until he sees two things. Number one, are they repentant? And the first time he cries in the other room is when he hears them saying, this is happening to us because of the guilt of what we did to Joseph. He hears the sorrow in their hearts. But it's not enough for abusers to be sorry. They have to be changed people, Mm -hmm. right? So he sets up the test. Are they going to sell out Benjamin to save their hides? And so that when, he, when they say, no, no, we are willing to lay down our lives to save our little brother, then Joseph cries again, enters the room, and reveals himself mm, to them. So, so good. people ask, when should I come back into relationship with family when you see repentance and changed yeah. behavior? Rob, thank you so much for doing the show. It's been an absolute delight meeting you. I like your book, and I like you. Well, I appreciate you talking to me about this important subject. Thanks. You bet. Thanks. We'll take a break, and we'll come back. Dr. Ann Bradley will be with us. Be right back.
You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arnold. Welcome to the show. If you just join me, just climbing in your car. Nice to have you with us. You've missed a great show so far today. If you want to go back to MyFaithRadio.com, you can check out the podcast. They're going to be available after 6 o'clock Central Time tonight. But Chris Palmer is the founder and pastor of Light of Today Church in Novi, Michigan. He's also the founder of Chris Palmer Ministries and host of the popular podcast Greek for the Week. Regular on the show. Always like having Chris on. Just one of the nicer guys out there. Chris, welcome. I'm glad someone's saying that about me, Bill. And that's the truth. <laughs> so I'm going to make a bargain uh, with you today. I want you to yeah. help us uh, understand one Greek word, and then I want to talk okay. about your new book. Okay, a bargain. A deal's a deal. My dad's a businessman, so he taught <laughs> me to do. always go after a good bargain. Yeah. So help us with uh, uh, the understanding of one Greek word. Okay, so, geez, there's a lot to pick out there. Okay. Um, do you have anything in mind? I know Rosie has a few out there, but let's see. Um Gosh, off the top of my head. Okay, so how about we actually there's there's one right in the text that I want to kind of begin with today. Okay. So I think we can we can look at that here. So in Revelation chapter one, I love going to the book of Revelation because I think there are new ways, I don't say new ways, but we're we're renewing ways to read this text. And this text gets a really bad rap sometimes because people always say I'm scared to read it. But when we go to the as we kind of go to the first chapter. We see a very familiar uh, greeting and blessing that is given from John to the hearers. And that is in the Greek. I'm looking at my Greek Bible here. It says, Karis umin kai un. So this means grace to you and peace from the one who was and is and it is to come. Now this, we see this, Bill, and we just go right over it because it's so familiar. We don't stop to think about mm-hmm. it. But something fantastic is going on here, and if, if there's any preachers that are out here looking for some some ammunition to really get your people encouraged on Sunday, this is where you want to listen. Because what's happening is – I'm going to get to this meeting – but what's happening is there's a, a very topsy-turvy world that the reader is about to enter into the text. They're going to see things that are very unique and, and somewhat frightening. They're going to see judgment. But before any of that, there's a blessing pronounced, and that is grace to you and, and not only grace, but arene. Now, the Greek word here, arene, is the word peace. And so often it rightly gets translated wholeness, both socially, personally, and that's a good intended meaning of it. And that would be more the Old Testament understanding of it. But that word in the Old Testament, okay, which was shalom. Okay, which the Greek word is peace, is Aaron in the Greek. As that word continues forward in the Old Testament, shalom, it picks up a prophetic meaning to it. And then in second temple literature, it starts to pick up an apocalyptic meaning to it. Whereas the only way that we can have true, total wholeness and total peace, both socially, personally, and communally, is as if the Messiah comes. And he begins and inaugurates his eschatological kingdom. And so the word Arane or Shalom picks up a anticipatory meaning. 
So now when it's used here in the apocalypse, it doesn't just mean I want you to have total wholeness. What it means is that there's also within this an anticipation that the Messiah is going to come a second time and that he's going to continue or as he's continuing what he started, he's going to bring it to a culmination. And so what the promise is here to the hearers in the book of Revelation, to that community, is that before you see any judgments, God is at work right now, and he is undoing the power of evil. He's undoing the effects of sin. He is in the midst of us working on our brokenness and our fallenness, and he's bringing about his messianic kingdom. And the community in uh, Asia Minor hearing this would really find an opportunity to hope. Because where there's grace, where God's grace and his power is at work, there is peace or he is bringing about his kingdom. So when we can personalize this in our own lives, Bill, when we see the work of the grace of God at work in our lives, whether he's mending a relationship, he is bringing about a restoration of something relationally that we've messed up, or he brings healing to a human body, or he mends a broken heart. Or he starts restoring communities through the works of those who are showing the goodness of God. That grace is attached to the ultimate eschatological goodness of God, where it shows and it echoes the fact that he is soon and he's coming. And it's just a reflection of what is ultimately to come. And so I think that's the fullest meaning of the word here, Aaron. It takes on that that future coming of God where he deals with the... Uh, undoing of evil and the problems that we face. So I hope is that meet that meets your bargain requirements. That is absolutely <laughs> meeting my bargain requirements, and it's that's it seemed like a very simple expression, grace and peace t- mm-hmm. to you. But I didn't know you that it, that verse, those two verses are going to be backing up the truck and unloading that what you just shared. That's very yeah. cool. Yeah, you know, I always words pick up meaning over time, and if you look at words from the Old Testament, these Hebrew words or it, it, the Hebrew Bible, the, the Septuagint, which is in the Greek 4th century, those words just continue to take on meaning. It's like a snowball that rolls down a hill. And so you can. one of the great things you can do in Bible study is, is, is see how a word is used in a text from the Old Testament and then see how it begins to pick up meaning as it moves from the old into the Ooh, new. I like that. And it's just, it's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. All right. Bargain's a bargain. Now let's talk about your new book. Uh, and I haven't read it because it's not out yet. So right. I'm going to rely on you to supply uh, both the questions and the answers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but the book is called Winks from Scripture, Understanding God's Subtle Work Among Us. Now this comes out in July, which is just around the corner. So we'll yeah. talk about it again, uh, Chris. And we'll um, once I get a copy of it that I can read myself, I'll be able to uh, ask better questions. But I know in the book, um, in Winks from Scripture, you will uh, learn how to appreciate uncertainty and integrate it into a very vibrant life of faith. Yeah, absolutely. So the book was inspired because, first, I, I say in the very beginning of the book that I'm not attempting to solve the problem of evil and suffering. It's the biggest question that we have. We talk about it a lot on this show. It's just kind of where I'm locationally in my, that's kind of my area of theology. I don't think that this, the Bible really gets at it. But what I tell people in the book is that while the Bible doesn't actually address that problem and address that question, uh, address the answer to that question, it gives you hints along the way, enough hints that we can hope. 
And we find those hints buried in the story. Now, as Western readers in 21st century, well, we're used to getting all of our information told to us in, in the form of propositions. You know, we're told how the weather is going to be. We're told what the news is. We're told what gas prices are. We're told how 18 ways that we can have a better life, 25 ways we can have a better relationship. <laughs> we're not, you know, we're not very storied people. In the first century, in order to get the information, you get you get stories. And stories are, were such where they were clever ways of, of, of revealing something to you. And in those stories of Jesus, seeing Jesus with the woman at the well, seeing Jesus in the home of Mary and Martha, seeing Jesus on his way to the cross, in these stories, we find what I call winks, the way that the teller of the story tells the story that give us hope that Jesus is in, con- in control. When I, I don't really like that word in control, but what I mean by that is that it's vague, that he's in the midst of us. He's joined us in our suffering and he's at work in our suffering to bring about, like I'm just saying, the peace or his final restoration of things and, and bring about a just world uh, for us to live in. And so I offer 30 studies in this book that kind of, uh, not just kind of, but that, that get at this and take us through some of the events of Jesus' life and even into the book of Acts uh, to to share with us that he's at, he's at work uh, in the midst of us. And so that's kind of what the book does. Mm-hmm. So Chris says that, um, biblical stories are loaded with mystery. The mystery keeps us asking questions about the story's details. In doing so, little ironies and nuances emerge that we hadn't seen before. This is God winking at us, letting us know uh, he's there guiding our lives. Absolutely. I think that's uh, one of the one of the biggest things that we need to realize. And so I know what you want to know. You want to you you want to wink there, Bill? Is that it? I kind of do. I mean, if you've written thirty of them, I, I want at least one or two. I want a <laughs> I want a major tease, and then I will pre-order major, the book. Okay, a major tease. Okay, so as we come to the text, um, one of the things that we we notice in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and John's Gospel is that these are meticulously crafted stories. And so. There's enough in there where readers would come to the text, and they it, most of these were, were orally translated. You take the letter, or you take the epistle, and you'd read it to a community, they'd hear it. But then there'd be people that would study it, and they'd read it a second time, so they'd have a secondary reading of it. Um, and so, in, in those secondary readings, I think there's a, there's enough anomalies in there where we begin to start to realize that unusual things are taking place. And, and perhaps one of the one of the most interesting things that we sometimes don't realize is in the book of Luke, when we get there, we notice that Jesus is at the table a whole lot, right? And so a lot of the important conversations that take place, a lot of the important posits of theology that take place in the book of Luke are actually at the table. And there are four or five banquet scenes, and that's one in every six chapters almost, where Jesus is eating and he's feasting. And in, in, in these scenes, the most surprising element of it, and, if you, and we don't really realize this if we just read one chapter a day, we close our Bible and move on. But when you look at it, you start to kind of get contoured. You start to see the peculiarities. And in every single table scene that we find in Luke, the most interesting thing about it is that all the wrong people, all the wrong people are at the table. It's not the right people. Hmm. For instance, uh, we see in Luke chapter 5, there are tax collectors at the table. We see, I, I said four or five scenes, it's probably more than that. Um, 
in Luke in, in Luke chapter seven, there's a sinful woman who's not even invited, and she's at the table. In Bethsaida, it's not necessarily a table, but he's on the mountainside. The multitudes are there, and they're complaining, and they're whining, and they're they're sheep without a shepherd. Then you see in Mary and Martha's home, you have Mary and Martha who are there, and they're women. They're not supposed to be technically at the table at that time because women at that time were the lessers of society. And the table was a place of teaching where you come to and where you would teach people. And women weren't necessarily being set up that way to be teachers of the law or teachers of the Mosaic Covenant. And then you, you go to the Pharisees' home. Okay, you see scribes and Pharisees that were disliked. Then you see um, in Luke 14, a man who's suffering from swelling. I mean, this is an unclean man. He's not supposed to be in the scene. Um, in, in 1910, you see Zacchaeus, who's a lost sinner. And so you begin, it, it goes on and on and on. So you see that I, I would I would say if you're writing a movie about Luke, you could say a tale of the wrong dinner guests, a tale of all the people that aren't supposed to be there. And this is really important because, because as you, as you look at table language and table imagery from Scripture, you, you learn that the table – uh, is a place where God invites his people to come dine and come sup with him. So you have the God, the creator, he's supping, he's having an intimate moment with his people. So this represents an eschatological banqueting, an eschatological time where God is calling the people from all over the earth to come and dine with him. And I think what this is, what, what this is, is telling us here. In our suffering, we have the suffering of the marginalized, the suffering of the people who are the overlooked, the suffering of the least, the last, and the lost. And that suffering comes because of broken systems. It comes because of sinful, uh, uh, you know, the, sometimes the, the top class, they, they, they exert power, they uh, exploit power, they manipulate. But Jesus didn't just come. He came for those people. But he didn't just come for them. He came for the overlooked. And he invited them and he said, come and sup and dine with me. And so I think this speaks to people that are that, that see themselves at the margins of society, sees themselves as the overlooked, pauper and the poor. That Luke's gospel is about Jesus came to those who suffer. Now, we don't necessarily know why all that happens all the time. It's very complicated. It's very, it's very complex, that type of suffering. But it does at least tell us. It winks in our direction and tells those who face that kind of suffering that God sees you. He knows you. You know, I was listening to the story of uh, uh, one of my friends. His name is Joshua Broom. He was um, an individual who was in the pornography industry. And he has quite a testimony. But, it, but when he talks about it, he, he talks about how he encountered God. And he'd be an example of one of these individuals who was at the margins. Wouldn't You wouldn't want to see him at the table because of the industry that he was involved in. But Jesus came for him. Jesus called him. And he, he received Christ and was filled with the Spirit. And God brought him to his table. And that's who Jesus is looking for, those types of sinners. And it reminds us that, um, that that God is not a respecter of persons. He looks to and fro to those he'd invite. And Luke's, Luke's gospel winks at us and tells us that you may never know who's going to be at that table. You know, when we get to heaven, I, I, today I was, I was driving down um, Washington Avenue here in Palm Desert where I live. And uh, I saw two homeless people at a bus stop. And I was passing them by. I thought to myself, you know, it may just be God's irony that in heaven they're sitting next to me at his banqueting table. Mm -hmm. And that's just how God would be. So Luke reminds us of that. And that's a wink in our direction that God is calling those to his eschatological kingdom. Yeah, Chris, in God's economy, you just never know. Those homeless people might be sitting on either side of you 
in heaven at the banquet table. And you're going to go, maybe sit. I know you guys, <laughs> right? Yeah, and, and you know, even even which is more humbling, they may actually have a higher place at that table right. if there's ranking thing. <laughs> right, right. But, but Lord, I was the one who gave them the money. Yes, but what they stewarded, they, they did a much better job of stewarding them than what you did with what they had. So I think that keeps us humble that we just never know God's irony. He, God has a sense of humor, and I think it's going to dawn on us all one day. We'll yeah, stand for him. I agree. Chris Palmer is my guest. His book is called Winks from Scripture, Understanding God's Subtle Work Among Us. That book doesn't come out till July. I'm sure we'll have him back to talk about that book. But for now, we'll just uh, learn what we can, get some more tease from Winks from Scripture from Chris Palmer. Be right back. We want to pray for you. We all need prayer. We would love to pray for you. The Faith Radio team is serious about prayer, and we pray for specific listener requests every week. Share your prayer request with us anonymously and securely on our website at MyFaithRadio.com. You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold, Faith, Hope, and Clarity, in a special repeat performance. So where's God when times are hard? I bet he might be winking at you to let you know that he's there. Reverend Chris Palmer is my guest. He's written a book called Winks from Scripture. comes out in July. I can't wait to get my hands on a copy. But, Chris, in the book, I think you talk a little bit about how the New Testament writers understood the Old Testament through Jesus. Absolutely. Um, This is something that I teach my students all the time, is to... We bring, we impose a lot on the text, and that's okay. I mean, that's just, it's normal for us to do that. We come to Scripture, we have a lot of presuppositions and assumptions about how how the text should work, what we've heard in Sunday school, and that's not all bad. But I I, I do try exercise with my students to try and make as as objective as possible uh, when looking at it and try to understand the Scripture the way the first century reader would understand it as a hearer without making any impositions to it. And, and one of the ways of doing that is just being content with the way the text is in its final form. In other words, I know this is, I hope this isn't getting too heady here, but not trying to create a historical reconstruction of the text, but just trying to look for the text, how it is in and of itself. And so one of the, when, when you do that, I think you begin to see how the text uses the Old Testament. It's dependent on the Old Testament. Umberto Eco, he's an Italian um, author. And he says that when we, we listen to people, when we, we read read writers' works, we, we watch films and movies, what we're seeing is just re, just products of having heard someone else. So when you listen to me, you've list, you're listening to everyone who's informed me. When you listen to other people, you're listening to who's informed them. And so I think that you know when we come to the, the New Testament, um, we're, we're seeing how the Old Testament has informed these writers. And um, one thing that's interesting is when we come to Mark chapter 8, we find a text that we really have to wrestle with. And I don't, I'm not sure if I've talked about this on the show or not, but forgive me if I have. But, I, but maybe we can ha- you know, take another crack at it. Jesus is praying for somebody in Mark 8, 22, and it almost seems like for a second that Jesus gets it wrong. Now, we know he doesn't, but it almost seems that way. And what he sees, uh, what he does is he prays for a man twice. And the first time he prays for this blind man, the man, Jesus says, well, can you, you know, can you see? And the man says, no, I, it just, it looks like trees are, it looks like trees are walking. You know, it looks like trees are walking. And so 
which is really interesting because it's like, well, did Jesus wake up on the wrong side of the bed? Did Jesus not, you know, was his healing power just at 70 or 50 percent that day? And we kind of walk away scratching our heads. And I think that's exactly what Mark wants you to do. He, he kind of puts this the way he tells it kind of doesn't give you the reason for it. But when you go back to different portions of the text, remember Mark's dealing with what, what he's trying to do is he's trying to get the readers to understand who Jesus is, that he's the son of God, that he's the king of kings, that he's He's the sent one who's come from heaven, and he's the creator. That's that's what he wants them to arrive at. And, and the way he frames it is through the life of the disciples. And you see the disciples in Mark struggling with this, okay? Who is he? At times they think they know who he is, and at times you realize they he doesn't know who he is. They don't know who he is. And we're kind of, we identify with the disciples. And in, in Mark 8, 14 to 21, there's a story in there, and it's, the disciples are kind of scratching their head. We won't go into the story, but the takeaway from it is that the disciples are scratching their head because, you know, Jesus tells them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And, and they talk about, and they, they think, what do you mean? And Jesus says to them, don't you yet not yet perceive or understand? And are your hearts hard? That's in verse 17. So they don't know. But then in, in 8, 27 and 30, which is just six verses, six, seven verses later, they have this moment of clarity where they come to realize, and Peter, on behalf of the disciples, correctly answers who Jesus is. He's the son of God. So in Mark 8, 18 to 14 to 21, they don't know. Mark 8, 27 to 30, they seem to kind of know. They get a hint at it. And in between those two texts, you have this example of Jesus praying for a blind man twice who slowly comes to see who Jesus is. What I think is going on here, Bill, is I think that Mark had set this story of Jesus praying for the blind man in between these two accounts of one, the disciples not knowing, two, the disciples kind of knowing, to illustrate how they're coming to know who Jesus is. That it's a gradual progression, just like the man who was blind who Mm. eventually saw. Okay, that's exactly illustrative of how the disciples are slowly coming to understand. They go from blindness in 8, 14 to 21 to having a moment of clarity, like the man who sees trees walking. What eventually predicts that after the cross and after the Spirit is placed upon them, that they're going to have this great moment of clarity where they come to know he is indeed Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God, the promised one who was predicted by Isaiah and Jeremiah and the, and the prophets to come. And so Jesus um, talks to them about this. And I think I, I think that's a, a, what I do in the book is I, I illustrate this about how as, as human beings, we're kind of like the disciples and we're kind of like this man. And at times we sense that we're blind. At times we sense that these, there's, in the midst of suffering, we have these moments of kind of half clarity where we kind of maybe know, even in our most clear moments, it still feels blurry to us. Kind of like how the Apostle Paul says that we see through glass darkly. What I think this is saying is that this is all seen in part and known in part, but there is going to come a time where the mystery of suffering, the mystery of evil, the omnipotence of God, the omniscience and omnipresence of God, that, that conundrum will be clearly known to us. We will stand before God face to face. We'll know why. We'll, we'll be able to understand better things of, like the Holocaust, things like the Armenian genocide, the Sudanian genocide killing of innocent children, these things that make no sense to us, that seem very blurry to us. We just have to hope in light of that. But I do believe that there's going to come a day where our seeing and our knowing is clear. And 
until then, we hope and believe that we now know in part and see in part, and we can trust in that moment that Jesus is, is on his way to the cross. He's done his work at the cross, and we will know and will triumph. So, Chris, it sounds like when you get done reading Winks from Scripture, you are going to have a renewed hope in God's beautiful plan of not only creation, but redemption. Absolutely. That's that's the point of it. And again, I try not to solve and go do too deep into answering why suffering happens. I don't think we're mm-hmm. ever going to, I say that, I say that, the, that these kind of, these kind of questions resist our best, our best intellectual solutions. I mean, we can't get there that way. Uh, but again, we, we approach that question uh, since the, actually the 1700s, 8, 18th century, um, post enlightenment with a rational mind. But the Bible doesn't come at it rationally. I think that apologetics you know, is good in a sense that it helps us to intellectually defend our faith. But when it comes to this, even our best uh, theodicists or our best apologists don't really have the answer to this question. And I heard, um, I believe Michael Murray, he said this, he, he asked the question, are we in a really good, are we in a good position as fallen creation to really give a moral evaluation of God and why suffering happens? And I, I, what he's really saying is, do we really, as fallen creatures, can we really do justice to answering this question? And I think the answer is probably not. Mm-hmm. And so what the scripture really does is it gives us a lot of hope and it gives us a lot of encouragement. It kind of it kind of leaves us there to wrestle with it. And I think that when you read Wings from Scripture, you won't get the answer to why it happens, but you'll be encouraged to keep on keeping on and not resign your hope. Sweet. Chris, thank you so much for doing the show. Always great to have you on. Thank you, Bill. Yeah, Chris Palmer's been my guest. Winks from Scripture is his new book out in July. Romans 8.1 says there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That wraps up our show for the day and for the week. Thank you for supporting Faith Radio. See you next week. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.